When Trust Business Lunch, John Williams here, and so too is our friend John Beaver, a frequent guest on the show. He is the financial advisor at Phase 3 Advisory Services. Hi, John. Well, hi, John. Boy, lots to unpack with you today. I was looking at some of your notes, and there's a lot going on there. Let's just start with this, if I may. David Hochberg and I were yesterday talking about the Fed. I said, okay, the line is three and a half. You taking the over or the under on rate cuts? So me, I'm going under, and I'm going to say two. I came into the year at three. I'm actually thinking now it may only be two, and that could be one of the disappointments for the market this year. Yeah, well, that's disappointing right now. Uh, why do you think only two? Well, uh, if we take a look at the economy, it's still really in pretty good shape. Uh, you know, to almost everyone's surprise, including the Fed, we've avoided a recession in 2023 and likely in 2024. The consumer is still in good shape. They're spending. You know, a report that came in from Square, actually, I should say Block, uh, looking good. So we've got the consumer still in this, still in the saddle. While we had credit card delinquencies rising, they've actually stabilized at this point in time. And the latest reading on inflation is a little bit hotter. It came in at 0.3% versus 0.2. And if you annualize 0.3, you get 3.6% for the year. That's a long way from the Fed's 2% target, almost twice as much. So not saying that we're in a bad situation with inflation. It's just we're not getting to the Fed's target. And they've said very clearly, very often, even in this last time, they want to see inflation persistently at 2%. That's probably six months of inflation. So I'm even thinking maybe not even June or July, we may be looking at two more rate, uh, two, two rate cuts more in the fourth quarter, late third to fourth quarter. They're never going to raise it again. I mean, not, that's not part of anybody's equation, right? Well, it's funny that it's not part of anybody's equation. What if the economy were to strengthen some more? They might have to rise. We all think they're not going to, but it's really going to be driven by this economy. And, you know, this is very similar to the 1960s. Uh, in the 1960s, uh, we were looking at, are we going to have a recession when we take a look at the inversion of the yield curve? So when I go back and read some of the writings about that time, there was some concern about that because when the uh, yield curve inverts, we think there's going to be a recession. And it actually took quite a while in the 60s. We went nine years without a recession in a rising inflationary period. It wasn't super inflation, but it was starting to heat back up. And actually, it was a 48-month lag from when the, inverted, when the yield curve inverted to when the inflation, where the uh, recession finally hit in uh, 1970. We're only 16 months into the recession time clock on an inverted yield curve. So, uh, yeah, maybe we strengthened by the end of the year. So I suppose the end of this would be inflation. But walk me through what the problem would be if, given as healthy as the economy is, the Fed lowered rates. What would go wrong? What would, what would, what would, what would the problem be with that? Well, here's the situation. Inflation really hurts the lower and middle the worst. And that's the biggest concern that the Fed has. They've said that, too, that that is their biggest concern is inflation. So if the economy does heat up, then we know that the Fed is definitely going to put the brakes on by uh, raising the rates and probably more dramatically. So while it's not a bad thing to have the economy growing, it's a bad thing to have the economy growing too much. And long term, here's the problem. It's the $34 trillion worth of government debt that we have to pay interest on. So when inflation heats up, interest rates heat up, that increases the debt service on the debt. And that ultimately is the biggest problem. Just thinking, so if you lower the rates, though, that spurs the economy, spurs the housing market, it spurs everything. That then, what, generates more 
income and more money chasing fewer goods and services raises the costs? Is that it? Yeah, that's it exactly. And, and then as those rates go up, and you have to look at, look at what's the natural interest rate. The natural interest rate tends to follow the inflation rate. So if we want to keep the inflation rate low, if we want to keep the interest rate low on the government debt, the Fed has to keep the inflation rate low, which means they can't let the economy get too hot. Should we then be satisfied with where we are? I mean, uh, there's no number that's glaringly bad anymore, right? Right. No, I think this is actually a good place. And I think that the Fed can actually sit at this level for quite a while because the economy is digesting and is dealing with these rates where they're at right now. And the Fed, they're going to sit tight, too, until they actually see a reason to lower the rates. Now, there is an argument to be made. They have to lower the rates before they see anything bad happening. They have to stay ahead of it. So they got to get the timing just right. And that's why I'm glad they're making that decision and not you or I, John. John Beavers here, financial advisor at Phase 3 Advisory Services, talking about the zone we're in right now. It's actually a pretty good place economically, but don't expect the Fed to lower rates anytime soon or much at all this year. But you also said that this year is an election year. So, John, what does that mean? So in election years, the market tends to be volatile. Usually ends up by the end of the year, it's higher, but there's volatility. And that fits really any year. We can expect a 10% drop anytime in any given year. In fact, last year, it came on time, September, October, and then we rallied from there. Usually in an election year, you get that volatility occurring right about now through the summertime. But as we get closer to the election, the market kind of sees what may be happening. And really, the market just wants to know what's going to happen. It can work with either candidate, either side winning. It just wants to know. That's how the market operates. But we have a, a, an interesting opportunity this year that's shaped up because of the divergence in the performance last year. And this has to do with the S&P 500. So we have the S&P 500 last year up 24%, and we have the S&P 500 last year up 11%. And no, that's not double speak, John. It's actually two different ways of calculating the index. Right, right. Uh, weighted so, and not weighted, in other words, right? That's exactly right. So cap weight uh, assigns each company a slice of the pie based on the size that they are. So right now, the largest six companies make up a whole 25% of the S&P 500. The rest of the companies make up the rest of it. And so when you get this period of time where the largest dominate the performance, like last year, NVIDIA was worth one-third of the return of the S&P 500, one company. And, of course, it's continuing on this year with NVIDIA. But the equal weight last year was up only 11%. That's a 13% differential between the two. And that's always notable because when that happens, we usually end up with a rough market down the road. What that means is that those two indices will converge. Your worst performing cap weight will do better than the uh, the worst performing equal weight will do better than the cap weight. And over time, your equal weight always beats the cap weight over right. time. So we think there's a great opportunity right now to make sure you're getting into equal weight. And we have the same situation with the small cap. Think about this. The last five years, we've had a significant divergence here. Small cap up about 30%, equal weight up about 50%. The cap weight up about 80%. That's a big differential there where the small cap and the equal weight could make that up maybe over the next 10 years and have uh, some good returns. I wonder how many of us, though, have money in some funds that we 
picked out of a pie chart with some advisor or on a website on our own. And we don't know if we're in an equal weight. And I don't know. So how do, how, how do I discover that? And then what do I do about that? Yeah, so the vast majority of S&P 500 funds are cap weight. The vast majority of target date funds and 401ks are cap weighted. So it's really hard to get into an equal weight. Usually the fund will indicate if it's an equal weight. So do some reading on the fund. And the other thing is, in a 401k, you might not be able to get directly to an equal weight fund, but what you can do is usually you have access to a small cap fund, and you could use that as a surrogate and add that into your target date fund. Talk to me about student debt a little bit. Yeah, so some news the last couple of days, about 153,000 borrowers having their loans canceled Uh, This is under the newer SAVE program. SAVE stands for Savings on a Valuable Education. Uh, It's actually a narrow set, though. These borrowers uh, have to have less than $12,000 borrowed and at least 10 years of payments in already, and then those those loans, whatever's left, is going to be wiped out. They will pay tax on the forgiven amount, but really these repayment programs have, uh, they're really a good opportunity. They're income-dependent, And which plan is best for each borrower really does depend. And it's not just what's best today. It's what's best over the next 20 to 25 years. So it's really important to work with an advisor and to get your 20 to 25-year projection done so you can actually decide which plan is better. And really, it's just a ratio of your amount of student debt to your income. And because it's a ratio, then many professionals which is with advanced degrees and have a lot of debt, they can actually benefit from this too. I don't necessarily support this strategy, but if the government approves it, we're going to use it you know, for our clients. I think uh, you're not alone in that. I think a lot of us think that's crazy, but they did it for us, so yep. you're foolish not to take advantage of it. What do you make of Governor Pritzker's budget proposal? Um, well, um, probably going to pass $53 billion. Here are the interesting things. Where does the additional revenue come from? They're more than doubling the sports gambling tax. And they're going to be continue to limit the net losses that larger companies can take. But what I think is interesting is they're extending the pension ramp. Now, what's the pension ramp? This is the period of time to where the government, where the, the state of Illinois is actually fully funding the pensions, which they should have been doing all along. So they're extending that ramp three more years. So now, rather than getting to that point by 2045, it's 2048. I don't even know what 2048 is. That's a year. Yeah. Yeah, that's a year, 20, 2048. So instead of getting to that point by 2045, they got to be there by 2048. It doesn't really make much difference. So it's, you're saying that we'll minimize, the, we'll minimize the payments so that over the next 24 years, we will finally fully fund the pension rather than the expedited ramp of 43 years, 42 years, yeah. whatever. You did, yeah, you did the math right there. So that, you know, that puts a little bit less spending into the plan and uh, yeah allows them to thanks uh, allows them to actually get the uh, uh, keep within a balanced budget which I wish our federal government would operate in a balanced budget fashion you know and if I could borrow your king for a day John yeah. uh, I would balance the US budget and let interest rates float to their natural rate what does uh, that mean you'd ba- you'd balance the budget which would mean um, which would mean Raise taxes and or cut services, right? Yes, some combination. And then what would happen as a result of that? Well, we we would be on a more steady path and a sustainable path because this overspending 
One, it's, it's like a, this deficit is like a drug. You need more to get the same high. Or it's like cranking up the credit cards to pay your other credit cards or like the gambler doubling down. Those are just not good long-term strategies. And then the Fed wouldn't have to mess with interest rates so much because we could let the interest rates float to where they naturally would be. See, and do you, right do you now, know where those maybe, would be? Where would that be, John? Yeah, so today the short-term rate might be like 3 3.5%. Uh, is where it might be, and not quite sure yet on the 10-year Treasury. Uh, we may be about where it would need to be right now, but it would be a lot easier to, uh, I would say it would be a lot easier in our industry to take a look at what's going on and figure out what makes sense, and uh, even determining what what's best for the market, because two things drive stock prices, earnings and interest rates. Those are the two main things. If earnings are going up, stock prices will be going up. And then interest rates, when interest rates are going down, stock prices go up. But when interest rates are going up, stock prices go down. And right now we're getting this upward pressure in interest rates again, which is making a little bit of challenge for the market, even though it's, it's at a new high. It's, it's struggling at this point. John Beaver is a financial advisor at Phase 3 Advisory Services. Phase3advisory.com. And number three in the middle, Phase3advisory.com. John, always interesting. Thanks for your help today. Thanks for having me on. So the United States Department of Agriculture, the National Institute of Food and Agriculture, have awarded a million-dollar grant to Westland Ashton, a professor of environmental management and sustainability at the Illinois Institute of Technology, IIT. Westland, John Williams, you're on WGN Radio. Hello. Hi, John. Great to be here. Congratulations. This is um, interesting to me, particularly since... What you're trying to do, I think, is um, interesting and, and maybe something that we all don't think about. Talk to us about this grant and why they gave it to you, what you intend to do. Sure. Uh, so we are focused on how institutions purchase food and how their food purchasing can support a more sustainable and equitable supply chain, right? So we are trying to see how uh, a couple key institutions in Chicago and Cook County are currently purchasing food, understanding what they're purchasing, where they're getting it from, Mm -hmm. and seeing how local alternatives might uh, be used to be injected into their supply chain. So one of the, the problems that we see is that large institutions are uh, really focused on providing a high volume uh, of food at relatively low cost to the populations that they serve. And for smaller producers, um, particularly those in the metro Chicago area, uh, they can't compete on price, right, because they're producing at a smaller volume, uh, labor is more expensive, land is more expensive, and so it's really difficult for them to access those contracts. In addition to that, there's a, a layer of uncertainty, right? So there's not really transparency to understand what's being purchased from whom uh, at what price point to make it more accessible for these local producers to sell into this food system. So through our work, we are hoping to increase the transparency um, in this system and identify some priority products that can uh, be identified 
for production by local growers that can meet these institutional markets. Hmm. What would be an example of something locally produced that could compete? So right now, um, the products that we, we see locally are things like apples, uh, that uh, grown in Michigan. And, and when we talk about local, we're typically talking about things that are grown within a 250 or 300 mile radius um, of the, the city, right? So Michigan apples uh, certainly count for those. Um, we're also looking at kind of how do you evaluate something that is sustainable, right? And we've been using and the city of Chicago and Cook County have signed on to a program that's called Good Food Purchasing. So this is a set of policies that they're implementing to try to identify food that is grown in an environmentally sustainable manner, uh, provides high animal welfare, fair labor practices, advances the local economy, and provides a high nutritional value. And so with their commitment, uh, they are trying to identify more food that meets these five values Mm -hmm. criteria and change their purchasing uh, to be in line with these GFPP values rather than simply going after the the least cost. So we have lots of um, things that are grown at our smaller scale um, and are also seasonal, right? So we can think about uh, greens and lettuce, which... You know, most of our, our lettuce that's serving institutions comes from California and Arizona, and we can't compete on cost with the volume uh, that those things are being produced. But there may be some higher value, smaller products that, that we might look at. Um, so tomatoes, for, for example, are something that you know, can be easily grown here, and at least in the peak growing season, the summer months, you know, can be grown at uh, a cost. Um, that becomes more feasible for these institutions to to purchase. If you discover um, that, then do you advocate? Do you advocate for those growers, or are you just shining a light on the equity or inequity? So what we hope to do um, is to create an information platform uh, that can increase the transparency around what these institutions want to purchase so that, and the the prices, right? Um, So that the local growers can see where some of these opportunities are so that they can go after them. So I think one of the, the complications in kind of the food system as is, is that for large institutions, it's, easier um, and more cost-effective to contract with a large food service management company. And then that food service management company handles all of the contracts with uh, smaller producers, uh, suppliers for different products to serve those institutions. And it's hard for uh, small growers uh, who don't have the relationships with these food supply chain uh, management companies to get into them. Uh, sure. So identifying kind of like where the opportunities are. Because like I've had uh, you know, a small grower say to me, well, if I know that you know, uh, a large institution wants to purchase 
tomatoes, um, I can grow those things, right? Um, but I might need a commitment that they're going to purchase it. So the information availability is is really important. I can see a purchasing manager, though, at a hospital or a school or <clears throat> some network, some institution, some chain uh, saying, okay, so your tomatoes or your apples or your greens are cheaper, but you know what? It's not worth the effort. I'll just continue to maybe pay more for some of these items, a little bit more, but it's just so much easier than managing all of these different producers. It would seem to me like that would be a hurdle, not so much on the production side, but on the purchasing side for you to overcome. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And so that's also something that, that we are looking at. Um, kind of what are the the policies, the contractual hurdles? Uh, because you're, you're you're precisely right. I mean, uh, a purchasing manager, it's much easier to have one point source uh, mm-hmm. who is is helping to manage those those contracts, especially if it's many contracts with small producers. So one of the things that that we're looking at is what are the different pathways, and one of those pathways could be through food aggregation, right? Um, so this is where we have a dedicated food hub, which uh, contracts with small local producers uh, to collect uh, what they're producing, process it, package it if needed, and be that coordinating point to the institutions. We have a couple of these um, currently in Chicago, but there is uh, room for for more of them, right? Uh, I think right now, and kind of in the post-2020, we, we see that there's been a huge surge in demand for locally grown food, um, for food that's grown by uh, folks from socially disadvantaged communities, from farmers of color. Uh, so there's, there's this, this high demand, but this middle, this coordination in the middle, it tends to be what's missing. And yeah. so through our work, we're hoping to illustrate what are some of the pathways to get food from these small local producers to these institutions. That's uh, Weslyn Ashton, a professor of environmental management and sustainability at uh, IIT. And uh, a million dollar grant has come their way. Uh, congratulations. I'm anxious to hear the results of your work maybe down the road again. Westland, thank you for your time today. Thank you so much, John. You have a great day. This is the Wintrust Business Lunch. More business news with Steve Grzanich. Start your timer. It's time for the Wintrust Business Minute, sharing Chicago's business news of the day. Home prices in the Chicago area rose by 10% in January. It's the first double-digit increase since the height of the COVID housing boom. Illinois Realtors says the median home price in the nine-county metro area was $315,000. The metro Chicago increase was just 6.3%. Analysts say the increase is largely the result of buyers paying premium prices because there are so few homes on the market. The available inventory of homes in December was the smallest in 17 years. Allstate is selling a Wacker Drive office building that the insurer had been eyeing for its headquarters. Cranes reports the building at 29 North Wacker went on the market recently, but the asking price is not known. An Allstate venture bought the property in 2022 for nearly $30 million. People familiar with the sale are expecting bids to come in at just $10 million. The building is currently about 57% occupied with small tenants. The report didn't say why Allstate decided to sell the building. I'm Steve Grzanich, and that's your Wintrust Business Minute. Steve Alexander has your business of food.
Yeah, thank you. And we are winding up National FFA Week, which always reminds me of Big O, Orion Samuelson. He said many times on this radio station that had it not been for FFA and its public speaking programs, he would not have been successful. So thank you, FFA. But FFA helps young men and women succeed in all sorts of fields, many of them off the farm but still involved in agriculture. And Mike Bilta is one. He was raised on a family farm near Bellflower, Illinois, and after earning a master's degree in crop sciences from the U of I, he went to work for Growmark. He was the vice president of energy and logistics. We'll hear more of Mike's FFA story from his widow, Sheila after I thank the Chevy Silverado and ChevyDriveChicago.com for sponsoring us today. There's never been a better time to put a Silverado in your toolbox. Okay, Mike Bilta, who proudly wore his blue corduroy FFA jacket when he was a kid, his name stitched in gold on it. Years later, he got up and went to work one Monday morning. Um, he had a heart attack, and he never came back home. That's Mike's widow, Sheila. He was 52. Very unexpected. After the shock wore off, Sheila found herself having to deal with an outpouring of sympathy in the form of donations to a memorial in Mike's honor. And I I just can't even begin to tell you how overwhelming it was. So, what to do with that money? Sheila and the folks at Mike's employer, Growmark, put their heads together. And, um, you know, we thought, well, you know, we can uh, do the FFA jackets because I know a lot of kids can't afford them. And they started an essay contest in 2019, the year Mike died, to give away 25 FFA jackets each year to deserving students in Illinois. And they have to answer two questions. You know, what are their goals while they're in FFA and what the jacket means to them? And Sheila is the one who reads the entries. Yes. <laughs> Lots of them. One year, I think I got like 140 applicants. The program was supposed to run four years, but Sheila and Growmark are keeping it going. So applications will be taken again this fall, and Sheila knows that Mike would approve. Yes, yes, he would. He would be very humble that he was being recognized for uh, his love of agriculture because he, he did. He, he, did, he did. And each FFA jacket donated in his honor comes with a pin, which reads... In memory of Mike Bilta. I'm Steve Alexander. That's the Business of Food on 720 WGN. Nora Naughton is a senior reporter covering the automotive industry for Business Insider. Nora, you're on WGN. Hi. Hi. Thank you for having me. What's uh, what's going on here? Get us started. Yeah. So uh, we're seeing um, a, an interesting you know, reshaping in uh, requirements here for electric vehicles. Um, some of this was perhaps expected in an election year. It's, it appears to be an election year concession uh, in order to get some uh, better support from both the uh, automotive executives and an all-important uh, endorsement from the United Auto Workers Union. Uh, so what we're seeing here is, uh, likely, this isn't announced yet, but likely Biden is considering uh, reducing the requirements for EV production below 60% of total vehicle production by 2030. Uh, so that's where we stand. Does the administration, or anybody for that matter, care what the production ratio is of gas-powered vehicles to electric cars, or is it just the math on what the emissions become? This isn't about production. It's about emissions, right? It is, uh, but there is a specific production requirement in these EPA proposals. 
Uh, so what the uh, the proposed vehicle emission reduction by 2032 right now is 56 percent um, with uh, automator automakers expected to aim for uh, EV production to make up 60 percent of new vehicle production by 2030. So those are two different metrics. Um, okay. And what we're looking at here is uh, the uh, lowering below the 60 percent production of uh electric vehicles. So what that opens up for the industry is the option to meet their uh, emissions requirements in more creative ways. So by using more things like plug-in hybrids, which there's been a new huge demand for those in the last year. Um, and uh, it relies less upon a, rely- a uh, switch to pure electric vehicles. Does the industry care? Do the automakers care what kind of cars they make? They, I would presume, just want to make whatever kind of cars people want. What does the auto industry want? Yeah, I, the auto industry wants clear marching orders uh, at the end of the day. This has sort of been a moving target for the last decade or so, especially as we've had um, administration changes, right, uh, which is perhaps what we're facing again here. Yeah. Um, but – The other thing about uh, the automotive industry is that uh, it's a unique retail industry in that its uh, product development has five to ten year lead times on it. So uh, they've been preparing for this switch to electric vehicles for longer than you and I have been talking about it, right? Um, And so their, their pipelines are full of all these electric vehicles that they have to figure out how to sell. Uh, so that that will require a lot of support, government support at this point. Um, but we're already starting to see, like, GM uh, previously was not going to include plug-in hybrids in their North American production and make a switch to pure EVs right away. Um, they've reversed on that, and they're going to include more hybrids. So we're seeing some uh, creative problem solving on the fly here, some nimbleness, but it is an industry that, um, you know, makes plans really far ahead and it's hard to switch directions. And why is it the administration, why is the administration softening or seems poised to soften these targets? Is it just political uh, or is it more practical? You know, it's a mix of both. Um, I think, you know, the, uh, this 60% of new vehicle production by 2030 was always a very lofty goal meant to push the industry to its mm-hmm. limit, right? Um, and uh, so in an election year, it's not uncommon that we would see this kind of concession, right? Um, but uh, it also coincides with this new level of practicality that we're seeing both from EV shoppers and EV sellers, right? Uh, the... Um, the demand from these really wealthy early adopters that drove a lot of the growth in the EV market for the last decade has basically dried up. Those people have bought their cars. And now we're moving on to a new sector of customers that are more practical. They have tighter purse strings. Um, and, you know, they're shopping not just to buy an electric vehicle, but they're shopping an electric vehicle against a gas-powered vehicle or against a plug-in hybrid. Um and they're harder to sell to than these wealthy early adopters. So that has caused a lot of um, 
a softening in the, the EV market that the uh, automakers didn't necessarily expect uh, as we change customer bases here. So this may be a pause in the uh, lift for electric vehicles, but they're not going away, right? That The market will be there. The administrations will almost certainly continue to push for EV production, but maybe not as much right now. Is that a fair read? Yeah, I think what I've been calling it is the plateau, right? We're reaching this uh, this plateau in EV growth um, that everyone is adjusting to. Like, you know, I think dealers adjusted to it first by uh, pushing back on some of their uh, electric vehicle allocations in the middle of last year. Now we're seeing the uh, car companies pull back a little bit on production and bringing in more hybrids. And then the next domino to fall is this uh, political pullback. Uh-huh. So there is definitely a plateau happening. Yeah. But the, the, the arc here is to electric vehicles for, again, the reason I said earlier about the long lead times. Yeah, no kidding. And just the inevitable, I think, realization that we've got, we've, we we have to reduce our carbon emissions, our footprints. Nora Naughton is a senior reporter covering the automotive industry at Business Insider. You can read about this and more at businessinsider.com. Okay, Nora, nice to talk to you. Thank you. Thanks for having me.